0: listening to the Emmaus Road podcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope that this content is edifying to your walk and an encouragement to your heart. Let's join Pastor Mike as he brings us the word. We are in a series, if you are just joining us, we're in Living in Babylon. It's a series through the book of Daniel and it's incredibly appropriate for our moment in time as 21st century Americans. And we are in uh, our 13th week. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 8. And so if you want to turn there, we, as we left chapter 6 and started in chapter 7 a couple of weeks ago, we we noted that the book of Daniel is shifting its focus from the Gentile kingdoms of this world and their impact on one another as they come and go, to the relationship that these Gentile empires are having on God's chosen people, the, the, the shifting is focused, uh, the focus has shifted um, onto on how how do these kingdoms impact Israel? How do they impact God's people? And honestly, um, there's really no good way to tackle chapter eight this morning, except to take it all at once. Uh, hopefully it won't be too overwhelming as it presents some material that we've already seen in Daniel, but there are going to be some new revelations along the way. So These chapters, by the way, are not in chronological order going from six to seven to eight. And we'll see that this vision that's given to Daniel by God is given in advance of Belshazzar's raucous drinking party, which we read about in chapter five. So, so what we're seeing here in chapter eight happened before chapter five. And it's one of the reasons I believe that Daniel was so steadfast in proclaiming the meaning of the writing that appeared on the wall ending Belshazzar's reign, because he had already received this vision you're going to see today. And what we didn't unpack then was that, so that night that Belshazzar saw the writing on the wall, the next morning he was, he was dead and Cyrus had conquered the city of Babylon, right? And so what we didn't unpack was that uh, the Jewish historian Josephus actually records that Daniel went out to meet Cyrus, And in his hand, he took the scroll of Isaiah, the prophet, and he went out to meet Cyrus and he spoke with him. This would have been 539 BC. And we know that Isaiah mentions, so the dating of Isaiah uh, early, uh, King Uzziah died in chapter six of Isaiah, that was 742 BC. And his latest writings go all the way up to 701 BC. So what we're talking about here is uh, Daniel's got a scroll in his hands that's probably 150 to 160 years old in terms of prophecy prior to this moment where he's meeting King Cyrus. And he, and he hands the scroll to Cyrus. And, he, and so um, God has given his word to his prophet. But here's what the text says. Daniel's showing King Cyrus the following passage inspired by the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 45 verses 1 through 5. Listen to this. Crazy. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. 150 years before he was even on the scene, Here's God giving a word to Isaiah, whose right hand I have grasped, God says, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. Now I got to stop and just say, the translation is not belts, it's loins, right? ESG tries to clean some of this up, but we, we already established, I, I'm looking for the poop humor in the Bible. And this is proof again that Belshazzar pooped his pants because God says, I loose the loins of kings. He was so afraid of the handwriting on the wall, right? If you, if you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen to that one. It's worth it. Um, so God says, I will go before you. Well, backing up to verse one, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed, right? Babylon was this impenetrable fortress city. And here comes Cyrus and he conquers it. He says, I will go before you in level, exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through bars of iron I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel who calls you by name. I call you by name, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. Can you imagine that moment where Daniel is showing Cyrus, a 150 year old scroll? from Isaiah that says, God said you were going to do this, and here you are. Wow. What a powerful thing to experience. Can you imagine what it would be like as a conquering king to have somebody hand you a 150-year-old scroll and read about yourself by name and about what you had just accomplished the night before? That's astounding. That is astounding. So for us, as we read this passage this morning, there are things contained herein that are present and future for us as well, and so my hope is that as we approach the text, we approach it with the same level of awe and respect and reverence that it deserves. God knows the end from the beginning, he knows it all he is the only one that can make that claim and so uh, to try to make this personal, I was thinking about this this week can you can you imagine some of you won 't be able to imagine this because you 're not old enough but um, Imagine that you received a vision from the almighty God himself in 1990. I was 16 in 1990. And in that vision was some of you are like, I was way older in 1990. God bless you. Um, I just turned 46 on Friday and I'm like, that's uh, yeah. Okay. So for half the room, you're like, you're a whippersnapper. And the other half of the room is like, you're old man. Right. So I'm stuck in that place. Um, but so, so imagine in 1990, God gave you a vision and detailed plans for the judgment of the United States in vivid detail, including all that we've seen in recent months and days and then beyond as we continue to go forward. Imagine that you would receive that vision in 1990. Can you even fathom the weight of such a vision, not being able to fully understand in 1990 all of it or being able to comprehend aspects of it? And, and so as you, as you just think about that, put yourself in that circumstance, you can begin to relate to Daniel In some small way, having been chosen to receive, but even by his own testimony, not always understand all the things in the visions and dreams that God gives him. And so uh, just keep that in mind as we go to Daniel 8. Let's look at the text and we'll just go, uh, I won't read the entire text. We'll, We'll jump right into the exposition of the text since there's much of it this morning. Verse 1, Daniel chapter 8. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, "'After that, which appeared to me at first. "'And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, "'I was in Susa, the citadel, "'which is in the province of Elam. "'And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. "'I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, "'a ram standing on the bank of the canal. "'It had two horns, and both horns were high, "'but one was higher than the other, "'and the higher one came up last.' And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So context, third year of Belshazzar's reign. This vision happened while Babylon was securely in power, though the vision will deal with the emergence and destiny of the Greek empire. The Greek empire at this point is not much of anything at the time of this prophecy coming to Daniel. Daniel's in Shushan or Susa on business for the king. And although it's worth mentioning that some people, uh, uh, you know, you get into commentaries and you find all these little nitpicky things. There's some people who hold the view that Daniel was at the Ulai Canal in the vision. And there's some people who hold that Daniel had the vision while he was at the Ulai Canal. And to that, I say tomatoes, tomatoes. Really. I don't. I don't we don't know either way. And it doesn't really change the meaning of the text. So, um, Susa was a city in the Babylonian Empire. We know it was 120 miles or so from Babylon. And we know that later during the Persian Empire's reign, uh, Susa would become home to Queen Esther. You know the story of Esther? And to it, it would be the place where Nehemiah came up and eventually asks Artaxerxes if he can go back and begin the rebuilding process of Jerusalem. And uh, we know that in 1901, they discovered the Code of Hammurabi in Susa. So, pretty important place biblically and historically. And as we look at this opening of the vision, the ram is Medo-Persian empire, which at the time of this vision was about to conquer Babylon. And this prophecy about Cyrus came you know, 150 years in advance to him, but Daniel's only getting this vision with very little time before these events transpire. And so we see that the ram's horns are unequal in the vision. And this points to the fact we've, we've established this in other texts, but the Persians were dominant over the Medes in this arrangement, in this one empire. Even though they were one empire, the the Persians were the dominant force there. So that's why one of the horns was bigger than the other. Verse five, Daniel says, as I was considering this, behold, a male goat came from the West across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran right at him in his powerful wrath. And I saw him close, come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of that, great horn, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. So this section of the prophecy details the rise of the Greek empire. This is the male goat. And so what's of interest to us beyond the immediate context of the prophecy is that God's setting things a place in a way that Daniel could not know and that we only discover through the privilege of looking back at history. And so Alexander the Great was the king of this Grecian empire. He conquered the Medes and the Persians. And so the vision continues with this little horn. Verse 9, and we'll go all the way down to 14. It says, out, out of one of them, out of one of the, the four horns came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression and it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, 2,300 evenings and mornings, and the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Now this reference to the glorious land is speaking of Israel as the promised land to Abraham and his descendants forever. That's a covenant from God. And I just got to say as a commentary to briefly, when we, when anybody starts to try to cut that land up and divide it up for the sake of peace, they're going against God, he says, is the apple of his eye, and it's dangerous. Now, all the stuff really hit the fan right after this peace thing with Israel that Trump signed. Right? You just trace it back to when all the stuff just blew up, and God said He would divide any nation that would try to divide His land. So, just take that for what it's worth. Now, this designation here of the glorious land also happens in Ezekiel, and this this is the prophecy given to Daniel and his vision. And now we get the interpretation, verse 15. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision it's for the time of the end. So here we see Gabriel once more. And Daniel experiences him in his glory apart from the throne room of heaven. If you remember chapter 7, Gabriel, uh, Daniel encounters Gabriel, though he's not named in the text. We find out later here that it's Gabriel. It's the same one that he encountered earlier. And in, in chapter 7, Daniel was just overwhelmed with a vision. He, he remembered the obnoxious little horn that had come up, and he's totally fixated on the obnoxious little horn. That's, that's uh, blaspheming and saying great boasts. And, and then, then even more overwhelmed with the glory of the Ancient of Days who comes and takes his seat on the throne. And he's fascinated with the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days as he's receiving this eternal kingdom. And all of this is happening. Daniel's just overwhelmed by it. But, but now he's alone with Gabriel. And none of that stuff is happening. And so Daniel has the very same experience that everyone who encounters an angel has, he ends up on his face on the ground. Because angels are glorious beings. They're terrifying. If you saw an angel, you would fall down on your face too. And so if you, if, if in your mind you have this picture of angels as fat little babies with wings just kind of flitting around, um, just destroy that in your mind, please. Destroy it. In God's kingdom, does not dwell any puny thing, but only that which is glorious. And that's why we're going to be made glorious when we're with him. We're going to be glorified, right? So, uh, and don't miss Gabriel's warning in this, the, the, this prophecy, though having immediate connotations for, for Israel, for the land, is meant to span history and find its fullness in the ending of the age, okay? So there's an immediate and a far context here. Verse 18 And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me to stand up. And he said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to an appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, Four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. So let me just stop and tell you about the king of Greece named Alexander the Great. You get a little history lesson this morning. From the time that Alexander could speak, his mother taught him that he was the descendant of both Achilles and Hercules. So she, she was beefing him up from the beginning. He was personally tutored by Aristotle. And he walked in his father's footsteps. His, his father was a conquering king. And he he had took, taken, the, taken the entire known world by the age of 32. He had conquered all of it. In fact, he got really depressed and, and just felt like there wasn't anything else left to do except to give himself fully into hedonism, which is what eventually killed him. But it's funny because today's woke crowd cringes at such imperialism. Now, Alexander uh, Hellenized the known world. Uh, Helen, Helen is a... Uh, A city in Greece, Hellenized means to take Greek culture to other conquered people and and enforce Greek culture, make them learn Koine Greek and speak Koine Greek as the new trade language of that empire, right? And so it's so offensive to today's woke crowd because such imperialism and conquest and inculcation is is morally reprehensible, but then they wage war on Americans and seek to inculcate our children. So it's ironic. Anyway... Part of the Hellenistic culture was the adoption of Koine Greek as the language of this new empire, making trade and commerce easier. And while it's impossible that Alexander knew this, he was actually setting up the perfect scenario for the coming of Jesus Christ. Because now the known world was all going to speak one common language of Koine Greek. And we would eventually get our New Testament largely in the language of Koine Greek. Rome would come in on the heels of Greece and they would adopt this approach and they would add roads and add aqueducts and new technology to make ready the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's timing is so perfect, so perfect. And then verse 23 to 27. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause the fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings has now been told and it's true but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and I lay sick for many days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Understand the privilege we have now with the completion of God's word given to us to be able to understand something that even Daniel did not understand. That's fantastic. This is where things become a little harder for the casual reader of Daniel to understand. So we're gonna take a little more time here. This is an explanation of that little horn on the male goat that grew exceedingly great. This was fulfilled in one of the four successors to Alexander the Great. And since the dominion of this horn was extended towards the south, towards the east, and then towards the glorious land of Israel, we can identify the historical fulfillment of this little horn in a man who was named Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. He ruled over Syria in Israel's land under the Seleucid dynasty, which is one of the four horns that came up after the death of Alexander. He maintained his rule through flattery and bribery. He assumed the title Epiphanes. So it wasn't his name. It's a title he took on. And Epiphanes means illustrious. So very humble guy. Um, Or it can be translated manifest God or God in the flesh, Epiphanes. So ego, major ego, he thinks he's God, he's alluding to his own deity, he's a legend in his own mind. And the Jews were oppressed by him. And, and these Jews who were under the, his boot, the heel of his boot, twisted his name from Epiphanes to Epimenes. Just, just one little change there, but it changed the whole meaning from, uh, from the manifestation of God to madman. Which was far more appropriate. Dude was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. So let me detail some things for you about Antiochus Epiphanes and what he did to the Jewish people. He killed over 80,000 Jews and he sold 40,000 of them into slavery. He, at one point, humiliated the Jewish priests by uh, forcing them to play uh, games outside the temple after having been stripped and naked. And so here they are in front of the whole. Jewish people, right? Making them do this naked. He forbade the practice of circumcision, which is part of the law of Moses. Related to that in particular, history tells us that there were two mothers in Jerusalem who were just determined to have their, their male children circumcised. And when Antiochus heard about it, he killed their babies. He hung the dead babies around the mother's necks and marched them through the streets of Jerusalem. And when they got to the highest point of the wall, he threw them off the wall and killed them too. He was a madman, psychopath, pure evil. And he serves as a type of the one who is still to come. There's another one coming. This incredible accuracy, this prophecy in chapter eight, and especially this section on Antiochus Epiphanes has baffled liberal scholars for decades. They just can't wrap their head around the authenticity of Daniel. Most of them have to deny the authenticity of Daniel, and especially this chapter, because liberal scholars typically hold the presupposition that there's no supernatural, right? And there's no God. Therefore, you can't tell the future in advance. Boy, and if you come to the Bible with that as your starting point, you've got a lot of gymnastics to do to make it make sense, Right? you got to come up with some other explanation. So either they deny Daniel outright or they often seek to date the book far later than its actual writing. But this prophecy speaks to the end of days. Antiochus Epiphanes, having come in the spirit of Antichrist, was a prototype or a prefigure of the Antichrist. He was not the Antichrist. He was a, a prototype. At one point, he walked right into the Jewish temple, into the holy place and sacrificed a pig which is an unclean animal, right? According to the Jews and their law, he sacrificed it on the altar. And then he, he had the blood of the unclean animal splattered all over the inside of the temple, profaning the holy place. He stopped the daily sacrifices. He ordered the Jews to profane all that was holy and to stop observing the Sabbath. He stopped uh, He stopped all of their, their rituals and their worship. And this was from about 175 BC to about 164 Uh, somewhere in those 11 years. And and many Jews ended up in in an outright revolt against this, which became known as the Bar Kokhba revolt. And Daniel, so Daniel here in the text that we're reading here in chapter 8 mentions 2,300 days in verse 14. So you got two choices here. You can take it figuratively or you can take it literally. And here's what happens if you take it figuratively. Uh, When you you take 2,300 days figuratively, uh, and, and some people make a day equivalent to a year in this. You end up committing the same error that uh, led to the creation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I just I just learned this for the, the first time this week. Uh, William Miller and his followers believed that this was figurative, a day being a year. And so they set the date for the return of Christ for 1843 based on the math. Now, I wasn't around in 1843, but Jesus didn't come back. So... I don't know what you do with that now, but Daniel mentions this 2,300 days, and if we take it literally as 24-hour periods, then it approximates between six and seven years from the time that Antiochus began his despotic reign to the time of the restoration of the temple by Judas Maccabeus called the hammer. He was a priest who drove the Syrian army out, cleansed and rededicated the temple, That event is observed by Jews, religious Jews around the world today. It's known as Hanukkah, the Festival of Lights. So that prophecy has its fulfillment. We have our historical fulfillment, but we do not yet have our prophetic fulfillment. So we ought to be asking the question, what was it that drove Antiochus Epiphanes? What would drive a person to do what he did? You know, the answer is, it was the spirit of Antichrist. We read about the spirit of Antichrist in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Listen to what John says. He, he's writing a letter uh, to the church, and, and in 1 John, he says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit. Don't, don't believe every manifestation of the supernatural. He says, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Listen, I don't know how you do that without the word of God. I don't know what other grid you have to filter through some supernatural experience except the word of God. We need to know the word of God. He says, by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. That's the spirit of antichrist, which you heard is coming and now is in the world already. He says, little children, you are from God. And you have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. What a, what a tremendous truth. They are from the world. They speak from the world. The world listens to them, but we are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You got to be able to discern the difference between the two. That same spirit is what's driving what's happening in the world at this moment, the spirit of Antichrist. You are witnesses to uh, the the manifestation of the spirit of Antichrist in an unprecedented way in the modern era. But know this, we have not seen the fullness of it yet. We have not seen the fullness of it. Look look again at uh, verses 22 to 25, this description of this person, right? It says, by his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. You When you read Revelation 13 and verse 17, it says, no one will be able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. All, he has his heavy hand on everything. You can't prosper without his approval, right? Got to get that mark. It says in Daniel 22 to 25, in his own mind, he will be great. He will magnify himself in his heart. Well, in Revelation 13, again, it says, he's given a mouth to speak blasphemies, power to continue for 42 months. That's 1,260 days are what we, we establish as time, times, and half a time, right? The text in Daniel says, without warning, he will destroy many. Better translations uh, than on this verse uh, say, by peace, he will destroy many. Well, how do you do that? How do you destroy people with peace? It's a false peace. He's going to lure the world into a false peace. When In Revelation 6, when the four horsemen of the apocalypse begin to ride forward the first horseman is all in white he's on a white horse and he promises peace but he's followed by a red horse which is the horse of war so it's not a true peace it's a false peace the daniel text says that he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and he shall be broken but by no human hand did you know the first piece of revelation 13 is against christ that's a fight Nobody could win except Jesus, not even Satan. Satan is a created being. He is not on, listen, if in your mind you got this yin-yang thing about Christianity and there's Jesus and the devil and their they're intention and they're, they're trying to find some balance with each other, that's, that's not Christianity, folks. Jesus is the Lord of lords and King of kings. He's the Son of God. Satan is a created being. He's an angel. He's powerful, but he's nothing compared to Jesus. He's nothing. No human hand it says he will be destroyed but or broken, but by ni- but by no human hand. do you remember back in in Nebuchadnezzar's vision early in Daniel there was, Nebuchadnezzar had the vision of the statue, and each metal in the statue was a different kingdom down through history and then at the end, there were the, the the toes, the feet were clay and iron mixed, and they were brittle and then and then in daniel's interpretation, he tells the king, so there's this rock, this stone that was taken out of this mountain, was cut out of this mountain, but it wasn't cut by human hands. And that stone smashed the feet of the statue and it smashed it so that the whole thing just became like dust and was, was just drifted away in the wind. That stone that was not cut by human hands is Jesus. It's his kingdom. It says that rock, that stone became a kingdom and it filled the whole earth. This is what, this is the illusion here, right? That this personage is destroyed but not by human hands. God himself will destroy him. It's a beautiful thing. Summarizing this last section, verses 23 to 25, we learn that the coming of the Antichrist will achieve great power by subduing others. Says so he will rise to power by promising peace and security. Um, some translations will have the phrase peace and safety. <coughs> Excuse me. That, that, uh, phrase features prominently in 1 Thessalonians 5. Let me, let me just read you the text here. Listen for that phrase, peace and security, peace and security. This is the promise, right? He's going he's gonna to deceive many with a false peace, right? And so listen to what the text says. Paul writes, concerning the times and seasons, meaning the end, end of times, he says, brothers, we don't need to write anything to you. You yourselves are already fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. People will be saying, peace and security, there's peace and security when sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. I, I hear so many well-intending Christians say, the, the day of the Lord's gonna come like a thief in the night. Nobody knows when that's gonna happen. he says, well, read the rest of the text. Read the rest of the text. He says, you are not in darkness, spirit-filled believer. For that day to come upon you like a thief, you are children of light. You're children of the day. We're not of the night. We're not of the darkness. Let's not sleep like others do, but let's stay awake and be sober, sober sober-minded, watching for the return of Jesus Christ. That's the call. I'm gonna just show you here behind me on the screen, the United Nations website. What does it say? Highlighted. Peace and security. Peace and security for the last five years there's a, there's a date. I couldn't find the date every year. It's like UN peace and security day every year. It's like right around September, mid-September. When Trump and Netanyahu announced their peace agreement in uh, in, uh, January 28th of 2020, the word peace in that joint statement that they issued occurred 41 times. Security occurred 12 times. They're saying peace and security, peace and security, peace and security, especially regarding the land of Israel. I added some, some stats last night. I stumbled upon this. Remarks by President Trump announcing the normalization of relations between Israel and the United Arab Emirates on August 13th, this last week. Peace mentioned 22 times, security twice. Peace and security, peace and security. I'm not saying Trump's the Antichrist. Please don't hear that. I'm not saying that. I am saying he's playing with fire. A holy fire of God would comes upon anyone who would divide the land of Israel. Those are not my words. Those are God's words. So take it up with him if you don't like it. Antichrist will be uh, highly intelligent and persuasive. We read in the text, he'll be controlled by Satan. He will first appear friendly to Israel, but then seek to subjugate them. He will oppose the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign and rule will be despotic, just like Antiochus Epiphanes before him, but he will be terminated by divine judgment. The same spirit will drive the coming little horn from Daniel 7. This is the one who is foreshadowed in Antiochus Epiphanes, who is manifest in the prince who is to come, detailed in Daniel 8. The Bible has many titles for this person who's coming. Call him the man of sin, the seed of the serpent, the lawless one, the one who makes desolate, and on and on, Scripture names him. I know I've read the following passage a few times over the course of our study in Daniel, probably every third week I've read this passage, but uh, it's meant to give us great hope. And so I'm going to read it again as we as we close up this morning. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 10. What a tremendous passage for us saints. It says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered together with him in the air, we ask you brothers, don't be quickly shaken in your mind or alarmed either by a spirit. So, so if a spirit manifests itself, and it says, Jesus has already come. That's all past. So don't listen. He says, don't, don't be deceived or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or even a letter that seems to be from us, Paul said, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. It hadn't happened. It hadn't happened. It's an unprecedented day, unprecedented time in history. Let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless some things happen first. He says, unless the rebellion comes first. The, the word rebellion here in the English is apostasia. It means falling away or departure. I have never seen more false gospels in the church than at this moment. See, every week there's a new heresy. It's like, how do you, how do you even invent that stuff that fast? It's crazy. So many people falling away from the faith. So many people falling into false gospels, being led astray from the truth of God's word. He says, don't let anybody deceive you. The apostasy happens first. And the man of lawlessness, this person, this this little horn, this antichrist, he is revealed, the son of destruction. He's the one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he would even take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Paul says, don't you remember when I was still with you? I told you these things. And you know what's restraining him now so that he can only be revealed at the proper time. So there's something restraining him. There's something keeping him in check right now in the world. And it's like, what is that? What is that? What is that? I would just say to you this morning, all my study on this for years and years and years, I have loved prophecy. And the only conclusion I can come to that fits the description of the restrainer is the Holy Spirit as he indwells the church. At some point when we are taken out of this world, there's no more restraint on this person, on this entity. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power, false signs and wonders. And with all wicked deception, for those who are perishing, listen to why. You're like, well, how is that fair? He's going to deceive all these people. Listen to what Paul says, the last line. He says, because they refused to live the truth, to love the truth, and so be saved. You are going to encounter people as you share the love of Jesus who, who refused to love the truth. Now, you're going to encounter some people who maybe have never even heard the gospel, and they respond favorably. You're going to encounter people who aren't shutting you down totally, but aren't really responding favorably. And they're just kind of hemming and hawing about it. And that's okay too. But there are people who are deceived because they refuse to love the truth. So as we wrap up this morning, I just want to take us back to our calling in Christ Jesus, our marching orders from the Lord. It's so easy when we talk about the future, we talk about the prophetic and what's happening in our day and tying those things together, what we can see coming on the horizon. It's easy to become overwhelmed by all of that. And just to feel like, yeah, I just want to go home and crawl in bed and just stay there for days and days and days, I feel hopeless and defeated. But I, I, I just want to, I want to mitigate against that. And I want to give you uh, I, want, I actually wanna go back a chapter in Second Thessalonians to chapter one, because that's not what our great God and King has called us to. Listen to the word of God through the apostle Paul as we, as we wrap up this morning. He says in verse three, chapter one of 2 Thessalonians, we ought to always give thanks to God for you brothers, because that's right. Because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And I, I, I love that I can stand here as your pastor and say that about our church. That's a tremendous honor. Our love is increasing for one another. Our faith is growing. He says, therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and and your faith and all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you're enduring. So, whoa, 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 hold on. Afflictions? I'm not sure I signed up for afflictions. (laughs) Well, let me just tell you what Jesus said. Through Paul in another letter, he said, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. I I grew up in a church where we sang the old hymns in the Southern Baptist church in the deep South. And I love standing on the promises of Christ, my King. Yes. Through eternal ages, let his praises ring glory in the highest. I will shout and sing standing on the promises of God. And then everybody goes standing. And like everybody under 30 is like, I don't know what you're dying on. What's a hymn? Um, Standing on the promises. We love to stand on the promises of God, all the positive promises. There's a promise that says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a promise. Isn't it a glorious promise? Aren't you excited about that promise? Man, though, Paul says, we boast about you in the churches of God, your steadfastness, your faith, and all your persecutions, and all the affliction that you're enduring. And then he says this, That is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you would be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you now suffer. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who are afflicting you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted and and as well to us when the Lord Jesus, when future the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance upon those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Recompense is coming. God will set all to right, and we must endure. He says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, Here's what Paul says, and here's here's what we got to do, where we got to engage. We pray for you. Folks, we got to be a people of prayer. We've got to be on our knees daily, crying out to Jesus for strength and wisdom, to make inroads for the gospel with people in our lives who don't yet know him. He says, we we pray. Paul says, we pray that God would make you worthy of his calling. He's called you. Now walk in that calling. You'd be worthy of that calling, right? And, And he says, we pray that uh, you may fulfill every resolve for every good work and, and work of faith in his power so that the name of Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where we need to just put our weight down in these days. Don't let your heart be overwhelmed with the eminence of these things, of what we see coming on the horizon. I think we all see the storm clouds forming over our nation and we see this coming, but don't be overwhelmed by it. There's glory set aside for us. And whether you believe this morning that this is the ending of days or not, the mission doesn't change. The mission is the same mission. If you're breathing air, you're sharing the gospel. If they're breathing air, they need the gospel. If you come upon somebody who's not breathing air, give them CPR and then give them the gospel. That's the mission. That's it. It's pretty simple. Go into all the world. Jesus said, well, back up from that. What did he say? I'm I'm deputizing you. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore. What's he saying? Go in that delegated authority. Go into all the world, making disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father. Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, obey, not just hear, not just, yeah, I, I prayed a prayer. The, the, like the call is to obey the word of God. We've got to make disciples that obey. And he says, as you do that, he says, I'm with you, even till the ending of the age, I'll be with you in the persecution, in the glorious moments, in all of it. Jesus says, I'm with you, church. I'm with you. I'll never leave you, forsake you. I'm with you. He's called us to go in his name and in his authority and to make disciples of all nations. And we need to engage like we've never engaged before at this crucial moment in time. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Let's stand. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, we come to you. And if anybody in this room is like, like I have been in the past as a person who regularly attending church and and believing your word, not knowing how to implement that, I, I would stand there in in, the, in churches previous and I would affirm that. I would say, yes, Lord, we need to be on mission. And then I would go home and nothing would be different on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday because I, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to engage. I, I just, life happened and I got sucked into the routine and, and it got lost. And then and suddenly it was Sunday again. And I pray against that. You would mitigate against that right now. And in the name of Jesus, by your spirit, That in every life, every family that's represented here, there would be an intrusion this week of the lost. There would be needs that suddenly come up that must be attended to, that would open the door for the gospel and for ministry in the Holy Spirit. And that you would kick us out the door. You would give us the boot and say, go and make disciples. Proclaim the gospel. The time is short. You are coming. We just put our hope in you again. Where we are weak, be strong. Where we are inadequate, be our sufficiency. We pray these things in Jesus' name.